Well, good morning. All right. That's, I, you don't always know if you should respond to the guy who says good morning. I get it. That's all right. Um, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Um, it's an honor to be with you. Thanks for making your way here. If you're watching online, thank you for doing that. Um, I just want to mention quick, Greg, I want to thank you for speaking here last Sunday while I was out. and appreciated that reset you gave us. Um, and I'm looking forward to today. Today we're in uh, this series we're calling What Jesus Really Does. And to get started, I wanted to tell you just a little bit about uh, my childhood. Some of you know I grew up in the Caribbean island called Barbados, all right? And in Barbados, I went to a school. It was called Harrison College. I was 11 years old when I went to college. Isn't that amazing? Um, now they just happened to call their secondary schools college. Secondary schools include um, from 11 years old on through 18. So it's kind of a mashup of our middle and high schools. So uh, to bring it more to light this morning, I wanted to, to bring to you some pictures of what a typical Harrison College boy looks like. Because we had to wear school uniforms in Barbados, all right? So this isn't me. However... This is what I had to wear, all right? So this khakis, all khakis uniform with the socks pulled up, they were pulled up above your knees and then you folded them over on a rubber band so the rubber band would hold them up because you get in trouble if those knee socks fall down. You got the, the brown khaki shoes, the khaki shorts, the khaki belt, the khaki shirt, and then you can't see it here, but you also had epaulets on either side like an airline pilot wears today, purple epaulets with a yellow stripe across it. Every day, Monday through Friday, that's what you wear to school. Now, that actually is a gift, in my opinion, because kids don't have to figure out what to wear, and you can't make fun of the kids that don't have the cool stuff because everyone has this awesome stuff. Now, girls, you weren't, you know, you had it even better because you got to wear a mustard bottle to school every day wrapped with, like, a chili dog around the waist. I don't know what that is, but this is what you guys got to wear every day. Now, and that was until you were about, let's say, 15 to 16 years old. Around 15 to 16, everyone changed. Um, you stayed in the school, and you got to wear what we called what the upper formers. There was lower forms and upper forms. And the older kids, and especially the older, older kids, they got to wear this. And this is both for guys and girls. Guys would have the, the tie with the school colors and a white shirt in gray pants, and girls would have a gray like skirt that they would wear instead of the pants, but still the tie and the white shirt for the girls. Okay, Now, here's the deal. Um, there was clearly a separation of powers among the student body at Harrison College. The people who had a tie were to be feared in general, because you never knew if there was a good person behind that tie or someone out for revenge um, for what they had to go through when they were in lower form, like all the rest of us, poor saps wearing all khakis and mustard bottles every day. And the, the upper formers, the people who were in sixth form, basically 17 and eight year, 18 years old, had the privilege of being called prefects. Now, uh, prefects would have the ability to write out a punishment or detention for any violation of school code that they found, you know, fitting. So if your socks were down and you came across a prefect, you could get written up and get a detention just because of that. Now, for some kid who didn't like to get in trouble, which was me, this became troubling. There was a lot of little rules at the school that uh, you, know, you had to follow. And so this was actually, and still is, the school that I attended, Harrison College. The quadrangle is what we call this space in the campus, right in the middle. And that building directly behind the tree was my second form classroom where I went to school when I was 12 and 13 years old. Um, and in there, we weren't allowed to eat in the building. So if it's raining outside, there was no cafeteria. You had to figure out what to do. You had to go sit outside to eat because some of the rules were you can't eat you know, in the building. There was no, um, like, uh, it's it just so different. We moved, uh, the, the teachers moved around to our class. We as students didn't move around to, to, to the different classrooms. 
And we also, um, when we had like what we call here in America recess, we would call it something different there. But we would go outside and we'd play what we call football. Americans tend to call it soccer. That's okay. Um, and we would, we would do that. And if we didn't have a ball, I told some of you sometimes we would play with a coconut. And that's the truth because we'd, we'd play with what we had. But we had a ball. And one day, um, in the far distance on this picture, if you can pick it up, there's a blue car and then two white cars parked to your uh, right of the tree. There's a strip of grass back there where we one day played soccer. I'll, I'll use the American term since I'm here. Um, where as lower formers, we played soccer uh, one day, and the upper formers, prefects, a couple of prefects came by, and they said, you're not allowed to play here. Now, they didn't have to defend why. It wasn't in the rules anywhere. Because they said so, we had to pack it up and leave. So we did, and let's say that was a Monday. We packed it up and left. And then we had the night to think about it, and we're like, Why? Who gives them the right to say that? Like, this isn't written down anywhere. And so the next day, guess what we did? We went back to the same little plot of grass and started playing soccer. And then through, there's a hedgerow. Through the hedgerow came a couple of prefects. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, now we're in trouble. And sure enough, one of my friends knew we were in trouble, and so he tried to make a run for it. <laughs> that didn't go so well because the prefects were like, hey, you, come back here. And he got caught, and it got worse for him. So I'm standing there like, hmm, what should I do? There was about 10 of us. I'm like, let me just kind of slowly walk away. Just kind of linger on the outside of the circle and see if I can get away. And sure enough, I was able to casually enough slide away from the group on the outside and find my way just coolly to the hedgerow and watching what was going on, then just turn and walk away like nothing was going on. And all the adrenaline in my heart was like, I mean, I was so like amped up, like kind of like when you drive by a cop and you might be going a little too fast and you look in the rearview mirror and you're waiting like yeah, about five seconds of like chaos in your soul, like, are they going to pull out? That's what I felt like right then. And then when they don't pull out, you know what you feel like? That's what I felt like here, like, oh, such relief and excitement in my soul. I got away from these people. I can't believe I got away from these people. And it's amazing. Now at my age, so old, I still remember that feeling. I still remember that feeling of relief. I got out of something that I should have been punished for. Whether it was right that they did it or not, it doesn't matter. They had the right, whether it was abusive or not, it doesn't matter. In that moment, they had the right to exercise discipline on me and punishment on me, and I got away with it. And it felt amazing. I looked up the word relief in the dictionary, and here's what it describes it as. It's a feeling of reassurance or relaxation following release from anxiety or distress, which is what you feel when the cop doesn't pull out behind you, which is what I felt like when I got past that hedgerow. Like, ah, oh, wow, what a deal. It was amazing. Can you feel that? When I think about this idea of relief, this has spiritual parallels too. I don't just tell you my history because I want you to know. Hopefully that's fun. But... Here's what I think, that for all of us in our spiritual journey, there's been a time when we have felt, we have felt an awareness of the fact that we've been on the field playing where we shouldn't have played, and we deserve to get in trouble for what we've done. We felt bad, we felt shame, we felt guilty from our sin, whether it's because someone at a retreat told us someday that you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus, and we were overcome by that shame and fear, and we trusted in Jesus, and now we felt great. You know, we, we had something to relieve us spiritually. And over time, we can move 
away from a feeling of relief in our spiritual relationship with Christ. We can move from feeling this sense of what Christ has really done. We can move uh, into uh, duty, obligation. I've got to come. I've got to serve. I've got to give. I've got to pray. I've got to read. I've got to do this. And we can also sometimes just simply forget what Christ has done for us and just live through life without a sense of uh, gratitude or thankfulness for what he's removed from us. And this morning when this series called What Does Jesus Do or What Jesus Really Does, when we ask the question, what does Jesus really do? This morning I want to make the case from an early letter that Paul wrote that what Jesus really does is Jesus actually brings relief to us by making us alive, by making us alive, which is exactly what you feel when you feel relief from the things that weigh you down or have weighed you down. This is a powerful idea, one that sometimes we forget because we can get older and just forget it, but also because sometimes we turn our relationship with Christ that at at the one moment was marked by a sense of real gratitude for what he's done to us. Sometimes it gets turned into uh, a duty-bound, obligation-driven, perfunctory or kind of mundane kind of relationship that we have to do. And what I want us to come back to is some of the foundation of our Christian faith, and that is what Jesus really does for us. And I think what he really does... We're going to see it in our text this morning. Is he really brings us real relief by making us alive. Now, in order to, to get behind this, join me, if you would, in Colossians chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, it's no problem. There's one in the chair near you. It's our gift to you. You can also look it up uh, in your, your app on your phone, version. If you have that, we could recommend that or any other Bible app you want. Um, Colossians is in the right two-thirds of the Bible and in what we call the New Testament, and Paul is writing there. We're, we've been in this little series looking back at the letter that he wrote to the early church in this town called Colossae. So we're going to look through three verses today. Can I go verse by verse? Beginning at verse 13 of Colossians chapter 2, um, Paul's writing some strong stuff here, and it's some really life-giving stuff while it is strong. Uh, so we're going to just start at verse 13 and, and read uh, Read the bulk of this verse to start. Here's what he says. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Uh, This starts deep and starts strong. I just want to start it here and and name it for what it is. I I love how he starts, and I also need to kind of get my mind around it for a minute with you. He says, when we were dead in in your sins, when you were dead in your sins, and when I was dead, and when when you were dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always think of myself as being dead spiritually. Um, I often think of myself as being being hurt by sin, but I don't always think of dead. There's a difference. If you can imagine with me for a minute... um, walking down the street in New York City. Let's say you're crazy enough to go to the, the ball being dropped in New York City. I've had some friends who've done that, and they've actually worn adult diapers so they didn't, didn't lose their spot in line. I don't, maybe you didn't need to know that information. But anyway, you know, it's crazy. So, so imagine walking down the street in, in New York City, and, and all of a sudden you are like walking down Main Street and enjoying life with everybody, but, but there's a back alley all of a sudden that pops up. And, and sometimes we get curious about what's down the back alley. And, and we can choose to, to walk down there and, and go down there. And sometimes, and as the stories go, it's in the back alley. You, we have a phrase like, oh, I wouldn't want to meet them in the back alley, right? And we get afraid of what could happen back there. And, and sometimes in the back alley, we have stories of pe- people being assaulted, people being mugged, right? And this is why we look down those alleys with like, yeah, there's not a lot of good down there. And I, I want you to imagine for a minute, our personhood or humanity in, in shared life with one another, walking down Main Street, the street of life, and, and along the way we can see a back alley and we can walk down that, that alley that kind of, 
we can call it sin, if you will, and we go down there, and sometimes we feel like what happens when we come back out is we were just assaulted. <laughs> Our personhood was assaulted. Um, we were drawn into something dark, something secret, something I prefer to hide from people that we call sin. We we're drawn into something that really is a not a uh, full reflection of my humanity, but my personhood was assaulted. And sometimes we come out of that alley, out of our addictions, out of our selfishness, out of our pride, when we kind of recover and return. Um, uh, we've gossiped again. We've watched porn again. We've been on our um, a, a alcohol addiction again. I've been thoughtless again. I've been loveless again. I've been prayerless again. I've pulled away again. I've been fragmented in my heart again. I'm hiding from her, hiding from him again, and I've gone down that alley again, and I come out and I try to make amends for it, and I come out kind of bruised and battered, and what is bruised and battered is my personhood or my image, how God has really made me. I've been bruised and battered in there, and, and what I think is, like, shoot, I've been really beat up, and I come out, and now let me kind of wobble back into to life and kind of get my bearings again. What the Bible teaches us is that when we go down the alley of sin, you are shot in the head and killed. You're not assaulted. You're dead. It's a graphic image, but it's over. You're not assaulted. You're murdered. Over and over, the New Testament teaches us this is the extent spiritually of what happens to us when we go down that back alley, which is why it is so ridiculously hopeless for us to think that somehow we can walk out of there and stagger back to retain and regain the honor that was lost in the back alley. We can't. Sin kills us. It doesn't just assault us spiritually. It kills us. And so here's where Paul begins, when we were dead. And so as we begin to think about this that Paul is writing, I just want us to think clearly about the words that he uses. When we were dead. So when you've come to faith in Christ, I, I hope that you haven't walked too far away from this beginning that sin kills us spiritually. We don't recover. We don't get bandaged up from it. We don't get better from it. It kills us. So we need some serious help. He says when we were dead in our sins, and he goes on, and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. We talked about that two weeks ago, what that means, that basically the uncircumcision of our flesh, I would say, is when we are still allowing ourselves to sit on the throne room of our heart, like we're still in charge, we're the one judging ourselves to be good or bad, we're the ones who are sitting there saying, you need to do more, you need to, to, to come more, you need to, to give more, you need to pray more, you need to do whatever more, and we're the ones, we are terrible, um, we are great slave drivers of ourselves. And that's what the scripture teaches. But we're not, uh, we are not good. We are not good um, grace givers to ourselves. And so we're dead in this. So we've been killed by sin, and then we live in our own condemnation of our own failures. And in that space, Paul calls that deadness. We are dead in our sin. And so in that space, this is where the last part of the verse is so powerful. He says, God made you alive with Christ. It's like he looks down that back alley, and he's like, oh, you were shot in the head, weren't you? Like, hey, don't worry. Listen, I've seen this before. In fact, I created life, and I created you, and I can deal with deadness. <laughs> and we're like, 
what do you mean you can deal with debt? And it's like, no, I, I've, I've seen this before. I, I get it. And so all of a sudden, God makes me alive with Christ. This is such a powerful idea. And this, to me, spells relief. Because what else am I supposed to do when I'm laying dead in the alley? So God makes me alive with Christ. And so instead of living in the death of being my own judge, which results in fatigue or disappointment, sickness, burnout, pain, instead of dealing with that, I get to experience the life of being freed from death now. So as I look at this, I think, well, how in the world does this happen? How is it that Christ does this? And this is where the last part of the verse comes in. How did, how did God make us alive? The end of the verse puts it this way. He forgave us all our sins. This is what he did. He forgave us all our sins. Um, this is the, the means or the way in which he said, oh, yeah, you're dead because of your sins. I'm going to take that away. I'm going to forgive you for your sins. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced this phenomenon, but this morning... Um, I had to apologize to my wife for what I did last night in her dream. <laughs> Anyone ever been there? That's a real thing, right? It's a real thing. Like you just have to own it and ask for forgiveness and move forward, right? But listen, here's the deal. Like forgiveness, and as much as I joke about that, forgiveness brings such life, doesn't it? When you know that you've really blown it, and when you know you can't achieve the help you need, forgiveness brings such life. You, you can ask uh, our family. Some of you know our family and our family story. So when we went through the situation that we did with, um, and many of you know the, the tragic passing of Linda Stoltzfus, um, you know, a couple, uh, boy, a couple years ago now. Uh, when our family encountered Linda's family um, and met with them, and, and they extended forgiveness to our family, um, you can imagine uh, the kind of um, relief and, and freedom uh, and undeserved um, kindness uh, that was to us. I, don't, I can't find words for it. I'm sorry. I'm struggling to find the right words, but I think maybe you can feel that. When you feel the weight of guilt and shame, and you know there's nothing you can do to remove it on your own. And someone comes and takes it from you and says, it's okay. I, for, I forgive you. What, do you. what does that give you? Life. Life. Forgive because I, I, what was I supposed to do with that? I, I, I'm, I'm dead in that. I'm dead to that. And this is what the power of Paul writes here. that you, you were dead in your sins. That's okay. Name it. Own it. You're not just assaulted. It's better to acknowledge and see you, you were, you're dead. In such a desperate place that we need someone to come give us life. And forgiveness of sins does that. And how does that work? How does, how does it actually work? Look at verse 14. What he does in verse 14, he says, Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That is a powerful, powerful idea. This explains how forgiveness happens. Uh, some of you have uh, mortgages, some of you have car payments, some have student debt, some have credit card debt, whatever you want to call that, whatever debt you have, you know that monthly you owe a certain thing back to the bank, whatever the bank might be in your case. If your bill is $1,000 and you have $50 a month to give to it, you know you're in a heap of trouble, right? And this is the picture of what Paul is saying here, like you you have a legal debt to sin to pay, and you can't pay it. It's almost as if, <clears throat> in this small piece of paper I have here, if I were to write up an agreement that the law would make with us, 
And if I could write on here, let's just say the law requires purity, okay? The law requires purity. Just pick a word. Uh, meaning that you will, <clears throat> excuse me, you will, you will think well of all the people in your life. You will be um, someone who is, uh, you, don't, you no longer look at the things in secret that you used to. You no longer critical of the people in your life that you're used to. You no longer hold the judgment that you're used to. Uh, you're not gossiping anymore like you used to with your kids. You're not uh, irritated with them uh, at the small things anymore with your classmates. You're incredibly patient with your teachers. Uh, you have nothing but love for them every moment of the day. Um, you know, the, the, there's nothing really wrong at all in your life. And let's say, this is what the law will write up. It'll say, here's, here's the deal. You agree to this, all right? I'll sign my side you, there's a place for your signature here. You sign right here, okay? You give, me, you give me 30 days of purity, and I'll give you heaven. 30 days of purity a month, and I'll give you heaven. Now, you might say, listen, I can't do 30 days of that. I can give you about three. I mean, if you're asking for the full day, for the full day in the last month, how many days I didn't do any of that stuff? Like, I'm thinking maybe two or three is a fair bet. But I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you to let me have the rest on credit. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do, Law. Let me, let me make it up to you by coming to church. Let me make it up to you by giving. Let me make it up to you by praying. Let me, let me make it up to you by serving in my community. So I'll give you, listen, I'll give you about three days of that kind of level of purity, which is ridiculous to ask anyone to do, but fine, you want it. But let me have the rest on credit. And what does that create for you? A kind of cycle of indebtedness that is impossible ever to pay off, which creates a powerful burden on you. And you know what Jesus does? He says, I've canceled, having come in and canceled all. He takes it. Let me see that debt. All right. Take that. Take that debt. Take that agreement. Take what the law asks of you. And sorry, Heidi, I'll clean that up later. I wasn't planning to do that, but it felt like the right thing to do in the moment. Let me tear it up. Let me tear up the legal indebtedness you have. It's such a powerful picture. We are indebted to the law. The law was our only means of salvation. That's how we get out of deadness. And Jesus comes, I'm going to take that, I'm going to cancel that legal indebtedness on your behalf. I'm going to take it away. That's how forgiveness works. Now, here's the problem with that. It feels like just an idea. It feels like, well, I'm asking you to believe in a concept or a theory or a philosophy. But the powerful thing about what Jesus did is he didn't just say that he was going to do this. He actually tied it to a historical event in space and time history. Look at the next verse of me. He nailed it to the cross, verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He made a public spectacle of them. What's Paul saying? He's saying what Jesus did when he was on the cross, he made this a public event that should you doubt what God wanted to do, you don't have to just check ideology. You don't have to just check religious thinking. This isn't about thinking and belief. This is about history. You can check it publicly, fact check it. The events of the cross, in the moment of the cross, this is where God embedded through Christ forgiveness. And if you're not sure, what Paul says is he made a public spectacle of it, both by dying on the cross and returning to life again. If you're not sure that this is what God intended forgiveness to look like and relief from our shame and guilt, 
check the public records, is what Paul says. He's not asking anyone to believe in belief. He's not asking anyone to believe in ideas. He's asking people to believe in the power of what the public spectacle was. A public event in time and space history where Christ came, died on the cross, returned to life, and in that he embedded forgiveness. So that when we experience the dark alleys of all of our lives, we can look and say, this is what Christ did for me. He brought me to life. It's so powerful. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8 as well. He puts it very clearly this way. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. He puts it, goes on, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So for those who are in Christ, there is now nothing that can condemn you. Nothing that can condemn you. Why? He goes on. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It has been torn up. It is gone. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does Jesus really do? This is why I say what Jesus really does is he brings us relief by making us alive. And what I want us to avoid, my hope for you, even in speaking this message, I want you to find relief for your spiritual life and your relational life and your emotional life. I want you to find relief in Christ. Not in the works that you do. Not in continuing to try to cycle through obedience, and honor, and dignity. Although those things have their place and they're good. I'm not arguing for a lawless and immoral society. But I'm arguing to understand where those things come into play. That what really frees us is not that we're good or that we're good enough, but what really frees us is realizing we are dead in the alley of sin. Gone, gone, gone. And when we come back to that and realize that, See, God made us alive through forgiveness. If we're not sure, check the public spectacle. All of a sudden, there's a kind of life that otherwise doesn't exist. And so my question for us this morning is simply this, one question. What do you do for relief? What do you do with the shame or guilt that you have? What do you do with the feeling of inadequacy that you have? What do you do with the stuff that you wish was different about yourself? What do you do with the sin that you know you keep coming back to and returning to? What do you do for relief? Because not unlike me in that schoolyard, when we feel the, the punishment coming, uh, we try to back up from it just a little bit. We try to find a way through. We try to find a way out. We try to find a way to come back and prove that we're going to be good enough and able to get through it. A couple of weeks ago, maybe a month or more now, I had the chance to meet with a member of our community and um, talk about some things that he was wrestling with. Uh, a, a good man, uh, but about 35 years ago, um, did some things uh, that uh, I would call sin, and he probably would too. Um, and since then, he's been working extremely hard um, to prove to God and to the people around him that he's a changed man and he's very different. Uh, but he has yet to encounter the, the feeling of forgiveness. <laughs> he has yet to find it, and the question is why. Because what he did back then, honestly, <laughs> he was a child, a minor, and I would probably have done the same thing, and I would argue that you might have done the exact same thing too. But what he has never allowed himself to feel is the freedom of forgiveness for that. 
And what it's done over the past 35 years, it has chewed up his soul. It has it is, um, it is crushed him. He, he's alone, um, relationally. The weight of his life is so much that he told me very directly that he has thought multiple times of taking his own life. And we talked about whether he has a plan for that or not. Why? How has he gotten to this point? Because what happens is sin brings death. And there's no relief for that. It just continues to squeeze us and crush us and remind us and condemn us of our failure. You did that. You did that. You are that person. You did it again. You shameful person. No one else sees it. Your life is fragmented. You look honorable on the outside, but on the inside you're wrestling. It pushes on you. It condemns you. It seeks to destroy you. And over time it will. What does Jesus really do? He brings relief. He brings relief by making us alive through forgiveness, which can come in no other way. I so longed in that conversation with that man to give to him, to give to him that feeling of forgiveness because it's there. And it's not just an idea. It's been embedded in the history of the world through the cross of Christ. Made a public spectacle. If you're not sure, check out the story. So what brings you relief, friends? You know, my hope as we continue to come back to what Jesus really does is that as we walk in our spiritual journeys, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years. But some of this is stuff that you've heard before and kind of kind of forgotten. I hope this can renew and warm your heart again. To tell yourself the story again of the hope of Christ. This is what Christ did. I am dead in my sins. You are dead in your sins. And what a beautiful place to start. Because that's the only way to find the real relief that you're looking for. So what do you do for relief? I hope, oh, I hope that you don't find yourself in the endless, thankless cycle of trying to prove your way, make your way, work your way for the relief that you're really looking for. Because what Christ has done, he's made you alive. And you can access that through faith in him and what he has done. So my encouragement to you, like it has been multiple times in the series, is to tell yourself the story of the gospel over and over and over again. How do you begin your work week? Here it is. I was dead in my sin. God made me alive through Christ. How do I begin my thinking about how I'm going to relate with my, sp my spouse this week? I was dead in my sin. God made me alive in Christ. You're going to school tomorrow. What do I do? I was dead in my sin. God made me alive through Christ. I'm heading to work tomorrow. I'm going to go in and try to lead a company, work with my employees, co-workers. How do I start? I was dead in my, I was dead in my sin. God made me alive through Christ. What does that do for your soul? What would happen if we continued to tell ourselves that story? What do you do for relief? Continue to tell yourself the story of what Christ has done. If you don't know that kind of relationship with Jesus, this is why we're here as a church, and we would love to talk with you more about that, even this morning. Will you pray with me?
Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here and gathered around your word this morning. I pray that you would help us as we walk through the different things in life that we deal with in our work weeks, in our relationships with our classmates, our teammates, our spouses, friends here at church and in our community. I pray that you would help us to find the gospel to be a centering point, that you would remind us that we are dead in our sin, but that that's not the end of the story, that you made us alive through Christ and have relieved us of the weight and punishment of our own sin. So, Father, thank you for the kind gift of the cross of Christ, the vicious death that it was that brought life to us by accosting death and removing the power from us. So, Father, we love you. I pray that you would continue to warm our hearts, soften our hearts with the truth and the hope of the gospel of Jesus. It's in his name we pray.